Welcome to the news for Thursday morning, August 10th, 2023. I'm Paul Durienzo. In a victory for abortion rights on Tuesday, voters in Ohio decisively rejected a measure to make it easier to change the state's constitution. And the people's power has been preserved. Because Ohio voters like you showed up and overwhelmingly voted down issue one. Voters saw issue one for what it was, a deceptive power grab designed to silence our voices and diminish our voting power. Issue one would have raised the bar for passing amendments to the state constitution to 60% from a simple majority. Supporters say it was protecting the state from outside interests. Opponents said the measure would weaken voters' influence and make it easier to block an amendment guaranteeing a woman's right to choose an abortion. And former President Donald Trump on Tuesday kept up his attacks on special counsel Jack Smith and vowed to continue talking about his criminal cases. On Friday, prosecutors sought a protective order demanding Trump stop talking about evidence in his federal conspiracy trial. In Alabama, Trump doubled down on his attacks against Smith. We always put America first. In response, our enemies unleashed an army of rabid left-wing lawyers, corrupts, and really corrupt Marxist prosecutors, these are dishonest people, bad people, deranged government agents and rogue intelligence officers to try and stop our movement. Last week, Trump pleaded not guilty to federal charges. He led an attempted insurrection to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Meanwhile, in New York City, where Trump faces a 34-count felony indictment for falsifying business records to allegedly cover up a hush money payment to a prostitute, a group of protesters with the organization Rise and Resist celebrated an early Christmas present in front of Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. Oh, oh, oh! Merry indictment! Activist J.W. Walker. This is a day of celebration because uh, Donald Trump has finally been indicted on federal charges and we think they'll stick. We can't imagine him not being found guilty. Besides facing federal indictments for the January 6th insurrection and 34 counts of Manhattan for business fraud, the former president faces another 32 felonies regarding classified documents kept in Mar-a-Lago and a grand jury investigation in Atlanta into election interference by the former president. And President Joe Biden signed a proclamation creating a national monument around the Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona on Tuesday while vowing to continue to use his authority to protect America's natural wonders. Today I'm proud to use my authority under the Antiquities Act to protect one, almost one million acres of public land around Grand Canyon National Park as a new national monument. help right the wrongs of the past and conserve this land of ancestral footprints for all future generations. Over the years, hundreds of millions of people have traveled the Grand Canyon, awed, awed by its majesty, but fewer are aware of its full history. From time immemorial, more than a dozen tribal nations have lived, gathered, prayed on these lands. But some 100 years ago, they were forced out. 
That very act of preserving the Grand Canyon as a national park was used to deny indigenous people full access to their homelands. In related news, today is the 78th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Nagasaki, Japan, three days after another weapon of mass destruction destroyed the city of Hiroshima. Both attacks killed more than 200,000 civilians. And finally, a woman was seriously injured by a shark while swimming Tuesday at Rockaway Beach in New York City. Lifeguards applied a tourniquet and other first aid. Her condition was listed as serious but stable at Jamaica Hospital. It was the first shark attack in the city since the 1950s. Shark experts say despite the frightening attack, the presence of sharks near shore is a sign of a healthy and recovering ecosystem. An explosion at a factory near Moscow injured at least 38 people, with five admitted to a hospital in critical condition. Video showed extensive damage and a huge cloud of smoke and debris. The counteroffensive launch with the intent of driving Russian forces from Ukraine's territory has slowed, with reports of devastating casualties among both sides. But losses have had greater effect against much smaller Ukraine. Pundits say recent assaults on Russian territory are a desperate gamble to convince the world Kyiv can still win the war. State Department spokesperson Matt Miller defended attacks by drones and missiles on civilian targets in Russia as just an eye for an eye. We neither encourage nor enable strikes outside Ukraine's borders. But as we have said many times, it is up for, to Ukraine to decide how to conduct this war. And when it comes to strikes, as you raised on civilian centers, it has been Ukrainian civilian infrastructure that has been targeted over and over. Ukrainian civilians that have been murdered in this war. Schools, hospitals, apartment buildings. I could go on down the list. So I, I don't think any attempt to draw um, uh, any equivalency is one that's actually backed up. State Department spokesperson Matt Miller. Former advisor to the State Department is James Carden, author of The Coming Battle, Who Lost Ukraine in the American Conservative. He says the United States is trying to weaken Russia at the expense of Ukraine's young men. If you look closely at some of the stories coming out in the mainstream press, stories in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and CNN, uh, it's becoming pretty clear that they can really no longer cover up what's happening on the ground. And what's happening on the ground is that the Ukrainian offensive is in the process of failing. They've lost hundreds of thousands of men, and the Russians now control 20% of what was Ukrainian territory. Things are not looking good. My fear is that when this is all over, what we're going to live through was something similar to what we all had to deal with during the Russiagate situation. People who expressed skepticism over the claims of collusion between Trump and the Russian government were basically blacklisted and called Putin apologists, Putin puppets, and all that stuff. People who expressed skepticism over American, the American government's claims over what's going on in Ukraine and expressed skepticism over our policy there are really in for it. I hope I'm wrong. If you look at recent history, we can expect something along those lines. McCarthy-type tactics? Absolutely. Absolutely, because that's really all that these people have left. They've lost every argument. The people who have expressed skepticism towards NATO expansion, people who have questioned really whether the story we've been given with regard to Zelensky and the regime over there 
um, that they're, you know, the last bastion of democracy and they're fighting the Russians so we don't have to and all that nonsense. All they have left is name calling and accusation and um, we're going to be in for a period of really, really um, nasty accusations of unpatriotic disloyalty. How did we get here? How did they make the mistake of sending a a small farming country of 40 million people against the industrial behemoth of 150 million? I don't know if it was a mistake. It was a plan. It was their plan to try to wrest Ukraine from the Russian orbit. And they paid very little attention to the one-third of that country that is ethnically Russian, that has its affinities for Russia because of their reckless policies. They sparked a civil war there in 2014, and that civil war kind of inexorably led to the war in February of uh, 2022. You mentioned you mentioned 40 million. Ukraine was a country of 40-odd million people. Well, it's not anymore due to the massive amounts of refugees, due to the annexations, due to the massive amounts of battlefield casualties. Uh, Ukraine is in the process of becoming um, a rump state of something along the lines of maybe half of uh, its um, pre-2014 population. For our non-political science trained folks out there, what's a rump state? Before the war, Ukraine was a multi-ethnic nation state. third of it Russian, most of it Ukrainian, parts of it Hungarian, some Romanian. The Russians have, in its effort to block Ukraine from joining NATO, cleaved off a fifth of it. So you have a country that has lost now 50% uh, of its pre-war population. And I think the Russians are ultimately looking to cut it off from any access to the Black Sea. So it will be, you know, completely, almost completely surrounded by the Russians. What you will have is a pretty homogenous but small and dysfunctional ethno-nationalist state. As you said in your article, we're as close to war as we've been since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. So where does that leave the United States, especially if its dissident voices are being squelched by the FBI? Where does it leave the United States? I I fear that there was an essay maybe 15 years ago by the late historian of Europe, Tony Jutt, who taught at NYU, and it was entitled The Country That Wouldn't Grow Up, mainly aimed at Israel and its enablers in the United States. That pretty well applies to the United States today. We're a country that when you say someone has not grown up, what basically you mean is someone, you, you know, you know someone who basically has never learned from his or her mistakes. I fear that that's the predicament that we're in. I really shouldn't pin it on the country. I should pin it on the people here a few blocks away from me in Washington. The governing class of this country has never learned from its mistakes. They basically refuse to confront reality. They live in a kind of dream world. And so I'm in a capital filled with people who refuse to grow up. And unfortunately, that has tragic consequences for people all around the world, particularly the people in Ukraine, who quite mistakenly took our elites at their word. James Carden is former advisor to the State Department and author of The Coming Battle, Who Lost Ukraine? You can read it in The American Conservative. 
And in national news, fast-moving wildfires spread through populated areas of the Hawaiian island of Maui on Wednesday. Six people were killed and a popular tourist destination was devastated by the flames. Communication has been hindered throughout the state by the disaster with intermittent power outages. High winds amplified by Hurricane Dora hundreds of miles to the south have fanned the fires, which are still burning on Maui and the big island of Hawaii on Wednesday. And closer to home, Mayor Eric Adams on Wednesday pleaded with the federal and state government to help the city with the burgeoning migrant housing crisis. Adams spoke at a formal address from City Hall. The federal government must take action. We appreciate them sending a team from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to New York City to assess the situation this week. There's more they can do including expediting pathways to work authorizations for asylum seekers. I have heard it directly from all the asylum seekers I've spoken with. They want to work. There's nothing more anti-American than not letting people work. We're also asking the federal government to declare a state of emergency. This will allow federal funds to be allocated quickly to help address the urgent challenges we face. Additionally, the federal government needs to provide more funding to match the reality of the course on the ground. Finally, we need the federal government to lead a decompression strategy at the border so cities and states across the nation can do their part to shelter asylum seekers. Because cities like New York, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, Houston, and El Paso cannot be left to show the a national crisis without the proper aid. Again, if we don't get the support we need, New Yorkers could be left for a $12 billion bill. The mayor added, if we don't get the support we need, New Yorkers could be left with a $12 billion bill. The mayor says more than 100,000 migrants have arrived in the city since last year, filling city shelters and prompting the mayor to warn of 10 cities to house the migrants who decide to stay in New York. A staff attorney with the Legal Aid Society is Joshua Goldfein. He agrees the crisis began in Washington, D.C. The federal government has admitted people into the United States in order to pursue their claims of persecution in their home country, but it has denied those people the ability to support themselves. They have no way to have a place to live without assistance. In the past, the study's policy was to house people in some place within a certain amount of time? They have a legal obligation to do that. What's the history of that legal obligation? How did it come to be? There's a lawsuit that was filed in 1979. The city settled that case in 1981, and they agreed that they would provide shelter to everybody who needs it. Have they been doing that up till now? Yes. There's been problems with this in the past, right? There, They had homeless people from because of COVID, and they were putting them in hotels, and they were kicked out of the hotels. Randy Mastro brought that lawsuit against the hotel on the Upper West Side, right? Yeah, but then we brought our own lawsuit. <laughs> and we won, and Randy lost. And what did that leave us? It left us um, with people uh, eventually being returned, most people being returned from the hotels to shelters, but people who had a disability that required them to have a less dense setting were able to remain in hotels. Everything is going fine until the southern state governors start sending migrants as part of a protest, I assume, to New York. Right. 
Is New York a sanctuary city? Sanctuary city is not really a legal term. It's true that New York has always welcomed new Americans and will continue to do so. You know, we understand that that makes us stronger. The next step is for people to be able to find a foothold so that they can support themselves and their families. The mayor says the real problem is they're not letting people work. Is that true? 100%. The problem would be solved uh, almost immediately if they would give people work authorization. What is the story with the work authorization? It's complicated. It depends on your status. People who file for asylum can file for work authorization, but also people who have a status called parole also can request work authorization. And people who have been crossing more recently have been offered parole, which means they could file immediately for their work authorization. How come other people are not being allowed to? That's just the way our system works. So the people who came in early before they changed the rules are stuck without work authorization. Is that a way to describe it? Yeah, it's up to the Border Patrol what status to give people. So it varies what status people get. But more recently, through the new system that Biden administration implemented that was enjoined and then reinstated, I guess, by the courts recently, fewer people cross, but the people who do get a, a longer parole. Back to New York. Have we filled up every single space, like the mayor says? There's no more room at the end? No. That was he, not accurate. It's not accurate. What, was, what's what's the message he's sending the mayor then by saying that? The mayor was sending two messages. He wanted to tell migrants who had crossed the border or were about to, but had not yet come to New York, that they shouldn't come to New York. He also wanted his governmental partners that New York needs help, needs financial assistance, in caring for people who are coming here, not because of anything New York did. So those really going to be tent cities, or is this just a threat? They're going to open some very large tents that will hold thousands of people. I don't think you're going to see lots of tents like you do in other cities. Right. That's, I guess, what I'm getting at. I've been to San Francisco and Los Angeles, and it's, it's pretty incredible. I don't know what New Yorkers would think if they saw that here. I think they would not be happy. So do you expect that that might happen? You are not going to see what we saw in Tompkins Square Park uh, back in the day. They're not going to let it get that far out of control. I guess it's a totally different situation here. We have a, a, a large group of new arrivals who have no connection to the United States crossing the border, needing a place to stay. And that's something that um, you know every community in the United States is dealing with. What you're talking about was something that happened specific to Tompkins Square, where there were people who were marginally housed, were protesting the way our society was organized, were staying in the park. So you don't expect that those two worlds are going to intersect here? That seems to be the, the belief. No, I think those are, those are yeah. two very different things. I mean, there are people who are unable to go into the shelter system because it doesn't serve them. And a lot of people think, oh my God, the next thing you know, there's going to be 10 cities everywhere like California. I don't know if the mayor knew he would set that in motion, that kind of rumor and feeling in the communities. The mayor's language could be a lot clearer. Joshua Goldfein is a staff attorney with the Legal Aid Society. More than $140 million in federal funds have been allocated to New York City for the support of migrants, while Governor Kathy Hochul says the state will reimburse the city for the cost of operating other facilities. The ongoing crisis of the unhoused has been sweeping the United States. Activists have been deploying to at-risk communities to help keep folks in their homes. 
The Poor People's Campaign has been working in Nassau and Suffolk County on Long Island, canvassing apartment buildings for substandard conditions, conditions that are harbingers of more unhoused people. And an activist with the Poor People's Campaign is Susan Carbiner. She's working in poor areas of Hempstead to identify bad landlords. It's gotten totally out of hand. I talked to a shelter resident today who told me that uh, the shelter that she's in receives $7,000 a month from the state for one room. And that if she wants to leave the shelter, the allowance that she would get toward housing would be less than $1,500. So we know that shelters are making a lot of money and they want to keep people in the shelters. The people who are profiting don't want people to leave. That's one of our issues, which is homelessness, including shelters. The other is organizing tenants in apartment buildings primarily. There are a lot of apartment buildings in the Hempstead area and a couple of other neighborhoods around there. What our people have been doing is going door to door, knocking on doors, asking people what the conditions are, if they have complaints, they can see the mold, they can see the ceilings falling in, they can see the mess. But there are people who will say, oh, no, no, everything's fine, because they're afraid of being evicted. Maybe they're undocumented and they're afraid of being ejected from the country. Whatever the case may be, they do get a lot of tenants who tell them what their complaints are. Our people have been very successful in locating who the landlords are, which is not easy to do because they set up their ownership as a limited liability corporation. And this one landlord, Bradford Mott, has over 100 apartment buildings on Long Island, each one registered with a different limited liability corporation name, and the tenants pay to the LLC. So they don't know about him. Bob has tracked down all of these LLCs and found out they are all owned by the same landlord. And he's done the same with other landlords as well. And he's had meetings with the tenants, have told them what their rights are, have given them advice about evictions, if they're threatened with eviction, and about what they should do to get organized and try to get improvements in the buildings they've had rallies we have a video of a rally they're doing it with a very small crew of people we heard the mayor here in new york just a few days ago saying we're out of room and people are living in tents do you have that same Isn't kind of problem outrageous our biggest problem is the outrageous rents and of course most Public assistance is based on the federal poverty level, which is $30,000. And on Long Island, it's at least $55,000, but they don't make adjustments for areas. People are told they can't get assistance when they can't afford to live on Long Island. There are people who live in Brooklyn, for example, who travel maybe three hours a day to get to their jobs in eastern Long Island because they can't afford to live anywhere on Long Island. 
You could have people in such tight situations living cheek to jowl with billionaires in $100 million mansions on the beach. Yes, and it's partly because we are so siloed. Each community has their own government, their own school district, not like New York City, which has one board of education. There's, I think, 124 different school districts on Long Island. The schools are funded by taxes, which in the richer communities collect more taxes and have better schools, and their whole standard of living is better. Susan Carbiner is an activist with the Poor People's Campaign in Hempstead, Long Island. And that's the news for Thursday, August 10th, 2023. The news was produced by your reporter from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. You can hear the news by searching my name at soundcloud.com. Thanks for listening.